We are living in unstable and unsettled times, which are making these times anxious and fearful times. Our world has been destabilized by natural disasters, unnatural laws that are passed, a global pandemic, and even the specter of World War III. And it, it, it's causing a lot of people to feel disoriented, a sense of we, we, we just don't know what's going on. And increasingly, people are speaking of it, it's hard to, hard to plan anything, and it's hard to get any sense that there is an overall plan. And yet, we, we crave both of these missing elements in our life. We crave a sense that I'm here for a purpose and a plan. And we crave the sense that there is some kind of overarching, overall plan. And when we have neither of these, no sense of a personal plan, no sense of an overall plan, then it creates this destabilization, this disorientation, this sense of languishing, a sense of being directionless. And so, at every stage of life, it really doesn't matter what generation you ask, the youngest, teens, young adults, middle-aged, old, the general theme is, why am I here? Is there, any, is there any point to this? Is there a purpose? Anthony Burroughs, a professor of psychology at Cornell University, has made his life's work the study of purpose. As far as I know, he's not a Christian, but his findings as he has conducted this research over decades is, is fascinating. And, and what he's found in what he's published is how important that sense of personal purpose is. He's found that the more people have a sense of purpose, the better in general their health and their longevity. He's found that it's a a sense of purpose is a mood regulator. It helps us to de-stress. He's also found that it helps us to overcome difficulties and, and persevere through difficult times. He's even found that it makes us more attractive to others because people crave in their other a sense of direction and purpose. He's found that it improves health overall, even that it slows down cognitive decline and is correlated with lower rates of things like Alzheimer's. A sense of purpose has a, a, an association with higher income and higher net worth. And those who have it tend to be much more self-disciplined, much less given to impulsive decisions and think through decisions much more carefully and successfully. 
Rick Warren, who wrote many years ago the book, The Purpose Driven Life, he found as he studied this subject from a more Christian perspective, that having a sense of purpose energizes our life. It calms us down in stressful situations. It simplifies our decision-making. And also, it directs our careers. Above all, he found it helps us prepare for eternity. So, it, purpose, a sense of purpose is a, is a very important part of being human, and especially of human thriving and flourishing. But as Christians, for however important our personal sense of purpose is and all the benefits that brings us, we cannot look at that subject without, first of all, considering God's overarching purpose which is far bigger, far better, far more important. And therefore, as we begin a series, a probably relatively brief series on finding our purpose, I want to ask this question today, what is God's purpose? As we look at that, it just looks confusing to us, doesn't it? It looks like a mess. It looks all jumbled up, but probably the person writing it knows exactly what she's doing. And so, we want to ask as we look at this world, and it seems confusing and jumbled up, is there someone on the ladder? Is there someone with a plan? Is there someone who can make sense of this? Because if we can get that, can you imagine the benefits that would bring if having a sense of personal purpose is so influential? How much more when we discover God's purpose, and when we dedicate our lives to advancing that through our lives. So, we want to begin with this, and, and we'll, never, we'll never find really our personal purpose unless we fit it in with God's overall and overarching purpose. We read this passage, Ephesians. We could have read many other passages on the subject, but you'll notice that three times Paul references God's purpose. In verse 5, he talks about the purpose of His will. In verse 9, he talks about according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. And then in verse 11, according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of of His will. So, you can see as Paul writes to the Ephesians, he's trying to lay this essential foundation to their lives and the health of the church by building with these impregnable, immovable bricks of God's purpose, God's having a purpose. And therefore, we want to ask that question, what is God's purpose. And our first answer, according to this passage, is God's purpose is our salvation. God's purpose is to come into our mess, come into our danger, come into our difficulty, come into our sin, and to rescue us, to save us, to deliver us from that. And what Paul sets out in this chapter is God's plan of salvation in three stages or three phases, and I want to look at them with you for a moment. Phase one, 
which we find in verse 4 and 5, is the eternal past. So, the, the prehistory phase, before the world began, there was a plan. And that's emphasized for us here in, for example, verse 4. We read, He chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. So, before there was an atom of this world, there was a plan. God's plan was to choose a people, to select a people before they were even breathing a breath. And what did He choose them for? What was His plan? Well, Paul tells us that we should be holy and blameless before Him. So, He chose, and He chose a people for a purpose of standing before Him ultimately holy and blameless, without a charge against us. Then he goes further. In this period, before the foundation of the world, prehistory, he says that he also predestined us, verse 5, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, verse 5. So, you see there, he's choosing a people to be holy, and he's choosing children to be part of his family, these people he wants to embrace and to welcome in to a warm, personal relationship, a family. Here's phase one of God's plan. Then Paul takes us to phase two, which is our time now, the history of the world. And he has four steps as he explains this. And we read about them here in verse 6 to the praise of His glorious grace, here's the great purpose, the praise of His glorious grace, His saving grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So, here's His first purpose. Here now, it's a purpose of blessing, of blessing us in His Beloved Son. As we are in Him, we find blessing. God wants to bless us in Christ, not outside of Christ, in Christ. There's a purpose of blessing. And then thirdly, secondly, there's a purpose of redemption. Verse 7, in Him, again, we're in Christ. It's only in Him. We have redemption through His blood. God's purpose here is to free, to deliver His captives from sin to salvation. So, that's redemption. He pays the debt in order to free the slaves of sin. And then thirdly, there's forgiveness of our trespasses. Verse 7, according to the riches of His grace. He wants to take these sins and to loose us from them. That's what that word forgive literally means. It's to let it go. It's to free it. It's to see it drift away over the horizon, never to be seen again. He wants to separate these chosen children for blessing, for redemption, and to loose them from their sins. And then, the fourth step here is teaching. At verse 7, it says, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, 
according to His purpose. So here, He's telling us, once we are blessed in Christ, redeemed in Christ, and forgiven in Christ, there's still more to come. He wants to give us more wisdom. He wants to give us more insight. He wants to give us more understanding of His plan, of His purpose, of His grace, of His blessing, His redemption, and His forgiveness. We're told He lavishes that upon us. So, that's phase one, prehistory. Phase two, world history. And then He takes us all the way to phase three, which is the future history or post-history, after history, after this world is all finished. Once God has wrapped this whole thing up, what happens in eternity then, eternity future? We're told here in verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time, okay, that's the end of all time, time's finished, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. So, He's going to unite these people, bring them all together. They're separated on earth, and even those of us on earth are separated from His people in heaven. But His plan is to bring that all together. And then secondly, He's got a plan of riches, verse 11. In Him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. He's, he's prepared a rich, an immeasurably rich, an invaluable inheritance for these children that He chose, that He adopted, that He blessed, that He redeemed, that He forgave, that He taught, that He united, and then opens up the treasuries of heaven to come and enjoy. Now, that's a plan. That's a purpose, isn't it? That's, that's way above and beyond our little purposes, our little stories, isn't it? You see how important it is for us, if we are ever to get a sense of personal purpose, that we get that sense of God's big purpose. That makes such a difference. You, those of us who believe this, it's hard to unbelieve it. It's, it's, it makes such a difference to our life, we don't actually even realize what a difference this makes. Try, try, if you can, to imagine living without any sense that there's any plan at all, that none of this past, present, future exists. It's all chance and accident and meaninglessness and pointlessness. There's no one up the ladder. Everyone's just, you know, scrolling their own ideas doesn't come to anything. Can you imagine trying to live like that? No, it's, it's little wonder, is it, that there's such a pervasive nihilism and directionlessness. And so, let's praise God. Let's praise God for His unchangeable purpose. He, he never rubs a piece out of that board and replaces it. Oops, got that wrong. God doesn't have a plan A, plan B, and plan C. He's got a plan A, that's all. And, and it will never be changed. It will never be amended. We can't defeat it. We can't thwart it. We can't divert it. We can't change it in any way, and that's wonderful. Who would want to? It's an unchangeable plan because it's a good plan, a wise plan, the best and the wisest plan possible. We can take strength from that. 
In another letter to the Romans, Paul spends 11 chapters unpacking God's plan. Chapters 1 to 11, and at the very end of chapter 11, he goes, oh, the depth, oh, the depth of the riches, the wisdom and the knowledge of God, of Him, through Him, and to Him are all things, to Him be the glory. It's like just, I can't, I can't not praise, I must praise, having contemplated this plan. So, let's praise God for His unchangeable plan. Let's praise God that His unchangeable plan is a saving plan. It's a purpose of grace. It's a purpose of salvation. Central to this plan is Him building a family of people like us, blessing and redeeming, forgiving and teaching, and then taking us into a united, rich, eternal future. Oh, so much grace, so much mercy. And remember, that plan will direct you always to Jesus. That, that choice, that adoption, that blessing, redemption, forgiveness, teaching, unity, riches, is only in Christ. God points everyone to this simple, straightforward, single point, and it's Jesus. Outside of Him, these things will not be yours. In Him, all this is yours. Let's praise Him for His purpose of grace. Let's praise Him that His purpose will be accomplished fully. We, we make plans, and they rarely come to pass fully, do they? I don't know if anyone's ever made a human plan, and it's just gone perfectly. It's usually messed up somewhere along the line, but God's plan is never messed up. It's perfect. So, let's trust His wise plan and, and His good purpose in every area of life. And, and as we do so, we will then begin to fit our stories into His bigger story. Let's, let's praise the planner by singing to the Savior. That's God's purpose our salvation. But why, why does He focus so much on our salvation? Why, why is His purpose so taken up with the salvation of, of people like you and I? Well, that's because, secondly, God's purpose is His glory. God's purpose is our salvation, and God's purpose is His glory. You might ask, well, what is glory? We use the word a lot, but what does it mean? Well, literally in the Bible, it means heavy or weighty. It, it's something that makes a, a weighty, a heavy, uh, a significant impression upon us, but not in a way that terrifies it's not a, a scary weightiness. It's a, it's a joyful weightiness. It's, it's an impression, it's a weight, it's a heaviness that comes together with a, a deep joy. So, 
for example, you know, we, we'll talk, won't we, about a, a glorious sunset or a glorious sunrise. We, it makes a, an impression on us, but it's not something that, oh, I don't want to do that again. No, it's something that makes us say, oh, I wish I could do this every day or every evening. Or we stand at the Niagara Falls, or we stand at the Grand Canyon, or we stand at our wife's bedside as she gives birth. And, and the weightiness, the enormity, the greatness of it all just comes upon us as a, as a joyfully heavy weight. It's something that leaves us awestruck, leaves us astonished. It, leaves, it stops us in our tracks. It, it stuns us maybe into silence or into praise. It, it, it's, these, are, these are rare moments in life, aren't they? We can probably count them, maybe on one hand or two hands. They're really glorious moments in our everyday lives. Moments that we treasure, moments when we feel just so deeply fulfilled, so deeply satisfied, so perfectly completed. It's, it's the peak, isn't it, of human experience. There's nothing higher. That's glory. But then we want to take that concept that we experience in everyday life, and we want to see it in our spiritual lives, in, in the spiritual realm. And again, Paul has um, a great emphasis on this because he talks about the praise of His glorious grace, His glorious grace. And he talks about, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. You see how Paul's connecting here spiritual life with glory, and especially salvation with glory. What Paul is saying is, if, if we can really grasp this salvation, if, if we can see it as it's meant to be seen, it will create the most joyfully weighty impression upon us. It, it, will, it will leave us awestruck and amazed. It will stop us in our tracks, and it will stun us into silence. As we see the glory of God's grace, it, we will recognize these moments, these times as the rarest, the most special, the most memorable, the most unforgettable moments in our human existence. We will, we will sense that this, this is why I was made. This is the most fulfilled, the most complete, the most satisfied I can possibly be. This, this fits who God has made him to be. This is the peak of human existence. It fits who God is, and it fits who I am so perfectly. As we, as we sense the glory of God's gracious salvation, we 
end up praising His glorious grace and the grace of His glory. This is, this is God's great purpose, God's great plan. Now, there's people who've said, well, if God seeks His own glory, does that not make God egotistical? Does that not make God like a, a self-centered monster? That's the wording people have used. You know, if, if, if you know someone, and I'm sure we all do, someone who seeks their own glory, they, they usually are egotistical, aren't they? And self-centered. How can we how can we keep this view of God as someone who's pursuing his own glory and yet still him be likable and lovable and worshipable? Well, it's because God has designed our salvation in such a way that it glorifies him, and as he is glorified, it satisfies us. Let's put it this way. The pursuit of God's glory, His glory, is other-centered. It's not self-centered. Because He gets great glory as He saves sinners. So, there's others here that are benefiting and getting blessed and enjoying God's pursuit of His glory because He's doing it through their salvation. And so, God's glory is the result of sinners like us being saved. And then secondly, God's glory is the reward of those who are saved. It's, it's something that we get to enjoy when we are saved. It's, it's what makes us most human and most divine. It's what makes us most fulfilled and satisfied. Our salvation gives glory to God, and then God's glory gives us immense, deep, thirst-quenching, soul-satisfying satisfaction and contentment. It's, it's a beautiful plan. It means that He's designed His glory to be advanced in benefiting others, and therefore God and God alone can pursue His own glory and still remain lovable, likable, and worshipable because He's doing it in such a way that brings such benefit and blessing to others in their saving and in their savoring of His saving grace. Do you get that? And therefore, let's, let's be saved. If you want to if you want to fulfill God's plan for you, you've got to begin with salvation. You've got to begin there. You can't bypass that. You cannot glorify God apart from getting His salvation in Christ, in Jesus. He, he's designed His plan of, for His glory in such a way that it all goes through faith in Jesus. And therefore, to fulfill God's plan for Himself, and to fulfill God's plan for you, this is where we must begin, with salvation. That's why Paul begins with salvation. It, it, it's got to become the priority in our lives. It's, it's the most vital part of our lives. We must, therefore, make this our number one priority 
to cooperate with God's plan, to support God's plan, to never fight against God's plan of salvation. And, and this isn't a one-off event. It's not just when we pass from death to life, from no faith to faith, from just head faith to heart faith. It's, it's, it's that, but it's more than that. Because we can continue to be saved in the sense of being saved from our sin and being saved to holiness. And every time that happens, God gets glory. And every time that happens, the person who is turning from sin to holiness sees God's glory in a whole new light and savors it in a whole new way and is satisfied by it in a whole new way. And so, being saved is is critical. And it's not just that. It's understanding our salvation. It's appreciating our salvation. It's enjoying our salvation. All that brings glory to God, which then satisfies us. So, be saved to bring God glory, to give God glory, and be saved to enjoy God's glory, to enjoy God's glory. So, you might be here and you say, I I don't know what this means. I've never seen God's glory in this joyfully weighty, astonishing, stunning, awe-inspiring way. Never… What's wrong with me? Well, what's wrong is a lack of salvation. And once you get that, then you will say, I see it now. I I get it now. There's a way in which I cannot explain this to you. There are words, sentences, Paul tries, I try, but at the end of the day, it's, it's, we get to Paul's point of, oh, the depth. It's just like unfathomable. It's beyond imagining, it's beyond comprehension, it's beyond words, but we can still enjoy it, often wordlessly, as we see it, and therefore enjoy God's glory to be fulfilled, to be satisfied. And this is what makes worship so wonderful. When we come here on a Sunday morning and evening, what are we doing? We're saying, I want to see God's glory. We have Moses' prayer, don't we? Show me your glory. And, and therefore, we seek it. We come with a desire, with a prayer, with a focus and a concentration. I want to see the glory. I'm seeking it. And then there are moments, times, parts of sermons, maybe whole sermons, worship songs, prayers, and we see it. We see it. And we savor it and we're satisfied by it. And we go out and we say, I want to show this to others as well. I want others to see this and enjoy this and enter into this. Therefore, we ask, what is God's purpose? It's our salvation. It's His glory. And therefore, get salvation and more and more of it to give God glory and get satisfied with God's glory. That's what we want, surely. This is where finding our purpose begins. It begins with finding God's purpose in Christ. And and He's the best example of this. He came to combine these two great truths. God is glorified in our salvation. God is glorified in His 
glory. And he brings them together. He believed this. He pursued this. He embraced this. He savored this. He showed this in an unprecedented way on the cross. And therefore, he says, come. Come, see what I did. Admire what I did. Enter into what I did so that you also may see the glory and savor the glory and be satisfied by the glory. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord and God, that you have a purpose, a purpose that is so glorious and is so beautiful, so saving, so gracious. Help us to believe in your purpose, embrace your purpose, pursue your purpose, love your purpose through your salvation of us and through us, and help us to get all these benefits and blessings that come from having that sense of purpose in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.